All right, so it's my uh, pleasure then to introduce uh, the weekly speaker then in the Greenhouse Environmental Humanities book series. This week we have uh, Eva Girard, uh, who's a senior lecturer at uh, Keel University, uh, who will be talking about her new book, What Comes After Entanglement. Uh, we have a copy out here. Uh, so yeah, uh, I will just leave the floor over to you. Okay, um, thank you very much. Just shout if my, as I say, if my, um, if I'm not close enough to my microphone. Um, so I said that I was going to try and share the screen for some of this, just because I've got a few images like piles of books and different bits of theory I've engaged with, etc. And I have to apologise to, I, I see Angela Cassidy's there and that she, she's probably seen this pile of books being used incessantly at different kind of conference events. So sorry in advance and sorry to anyone else who's sat in a presentation I've done over the past year and has seen this particular image. But I just wanted to kind of show you the types of work that I've been like engaging with. And I suppose that it's the context that I was trying to write this book in. So I'm just going to move to my, my PowerPoint here. Ooh. I'm going to start by just apologising and homogenising this really rich body of work. Um, but for the sake of kind of brevity, I think I need to just offer a bit of a summary to offer the, yeah, the context I was trying to work in. So I was trying to kind of engage with, but also try to sort of, I suppose it was a with and against situation where there's all of this really important theoretical work that I love and I think is really important. Um, but over the past few years, I've been um, noticing a few kind of tensions with some of the claims made by this body of work and or some, some of these texts anyway and different instances of activism and what my book was trying to do was I suppose speak to that space between um, theory and practice that's kind of crudely construed. So just to summarise what I was seeing these texts as doing, I think one of the kind of key things and one of the really important things that these texts have done is to trace all of the entanglements between humans and all manner of other non more than human beings and um, from microbes and minerals to technologies and of course non-human animals and the purpose of doing this was an ethical one it just offered this means of kind of moving beyond anthropocentric ways of thinking of and of acting in the world and what i was and i think this has been so important but it's also led to some tensions that I think are nicely crystallised by Alexis Shotwell's quote here. Sometimes it's really hard to know what to do with this overwhelming complexity with all of these entanglements that are kind of being charted. And what I was really trying to do in the book was um, find ways of sort of thinking through that, trying to approach these questions of intervention. And each chapter in the book focuses on a case study related to activist practice um, that was trying to kind of think about how maybe a historical or a contemporary instance of activism could maybe speak back and to some extent complicated some of the complicate some of the claims that were being made by that body of theoretical work okay um, and so I as I said I was each chapter in the book was taking an instance of activism moving broadly speaking from the 1980s to the present day to ask how it kind of maybe sometimes spoke with sometimes against a particular set of theoretical debates 
in order to sort of think in a more sustained way about how intervention can occur amid complexity. And I'm not saying the book sort of finds any sort of perfect answers to this by any means, but I did think it was important to centralise some slightly different questions than maybe some of those that were coming to the fore in theoretical context. And I'm just going to kind of zoom over. Again, I'm going to try and share my screen just to sort of zoom over, I suppose, some of the theoretical debates that I was um, engaging with when I was looking at these um, debates. So I'll see if I can share my screen again to sort of flag up what I was doing. Um, so, as I say, for quite a long time, I think, um, different theorists have been sort of suggesting that maybe entanglement and recognising connectedness isn't necessarily enough to ground an ethic. And there's been quite an important lineage of work in kind of feminist science studies and different strands of anthropology that's trying to sort of flag up the limitations maybe of entanglement and complexity. Um, and it's that type of work that I was really interested in. So I think you've got, for instance, um, people like um, Marilyn Strathern, who's sort of talked about the sort of in practice, and this is the kind of response to actor network theory. So maybe in practice, um, every network has kind of edges that emerge because of various um, social practices. Probably the most famous account you've got, like Karen Brad's um, idea of the gentle cut in meeting the universe part way, where she sort of says that for every reality that's materialized, something else has to have been excluded. Joanna Latimer talks about sometimes that in this kind of really beautiful blog and um, that sometimes these exclusions are quite violent and maybe can be a matter of life and death and um, particularly when some pluralisms might be incommensurable with one another and um, ooh, my slides have gone a bit funny <laughs> there are two images there that were on separate slides but now they've become some sort of slug third hybrid what they were trying to do though maybe I'll leave it big like this what I was trying to do though was show this slide, which is um, Franklin Jin's paper on um, slugs, which I think is this really lovely paper called Sticky Lies. And one of the kind of key things about this that I think is really important was that kind of emphasis on the way that some pluralism, some ways of being are just incompatible with one another. So at some point, at some level, decisions have to be made about which ways of doing things are prioritised over others. And he's talking about this and just everyday sites such as the garden, you know, the idea that gardeners, slugs, plants can't all flourish in the same space at the same time. And how do you find, how do you make decisions about which relations to flourish in an ethical way? And what I was trying to do in the paper was sort of ask what, on in the book, sorry, was ask what happens if you start to centralise those types of questions. Um, and for me, centralising those questions about which relations should you push for and not others was kind of important in speaking to this broader problem that Tom Van Doren talks about when he says and so we're required to take a stand for some possible worlds and not others and I think that not there is just really kind of important and needs thinking about a little bit more than maybe is allowed by some accounts of entanglement and complexity. The other thing incidentally that I think is important about this quote is the we and who's being invoked by the we here. And obviously there've been some incredibly important critiques um, in recent years that sort of unsettled sort of narrative about the we in these types of contexts. And it's, it's these types of questions of how to foster accountability while not universalizing the we 
in these types of invocations that I think um, is really important and I was trying to kind of grapple with um, in the book. So I'll stop sharing now and go back <laughs> to myself. Um, so the way that I approached answering this question of not others was by trying to kind of look at how different activist groups had already tried to approach these types of questions, these types of problems. And I think activism can provide all sorts of really interesting insights into sometimes, sometimes the way that fails, sometimes the way that compromises have to be made. But whatever it does, it's, um, it kind of shifts the type of questions, I think, that need to be asked in um, theoretical context. And I just wanted to touch very slightly on the fifth chapter in the book, where I was trying to, which I think kind of crystallizes maybe some of the motivations behind writing this book in the first place. So in chapter five, I was um, attempting to engage with um, a sort of set of concerns about um, laboratory animal ethics, which um, built on existing work I'd done with um, Greg Holland. And in particular, a paper that was focused on um, the emphasis that's been made in research about entanglement and complexity um, and that has tried to sort of bring those um, frameworks to bear um, in the context of laboratory animals. And um, one of the things I was particularly, I suppose, worried about in this kind of literature was um, Donna Haraway's argument that maybe we should shift away from a focus on suffering because this isn't the decisive question, the one that turns things around in a sort of transformative sense. And instead, there'd been a move to focus on bodily care ethics and sort of situated response ability in the lab. So instead of kind of regulatory frameworks that are kind of defined in advance, the argument goes, it's also important to maybe think about how to sort of foster response, response ability on a day-to-day -day level by being open to sort of being attuned to animals' everyday needs and sort of change practice accordingly. And there was this kind of idea that's emerged and been taken up across lots of laboratory animal literatures, that this is a kind of much more situated, much less totalizing, and much more kind of radically non-anthropocentric form of ethics than maybe large frameworks that are sort of defined in advance. And I can kind of I suppose one of the things that I was thinking about in my work were the limits of those types of approaches because they're very kind of um, oriented around encounters and the present and bodily kind of moments of becoming tuned to sort of a particular non-human animal's behaviour. And what can sometimes get lost are the longer histories that maybe have lain behind that encounter, brought that counter into being, the exclusions that are kind of have maybe already taken place to allow a convivial encounter to occur. And in my research, one of the things that um, has emerged in relation, or one of the things I looked at in relation to that was um, laboratory beagles. And Greg and I wrote a paper um, a few years ago now for theory, culture and society that tried to say, well, what happens if you look at the longer history of human beagle encounters that have kind of allowed convivial relationships with beagles to happen in the present? And we actually kind of found some quite uncomfortable things when we were looking at that body of theoretical work, um, sorry, when we were looking at those histories. And we found in particular some quite uncomfortable parallels with theoretical work 
that had kind of talked very much about the transformational and radically non-anthropocentric potentials of theory that had sort of um, emphasised the need for more situated bodily encounters in the lab. And actually histories that show that the presence of those encounters don't necessarily change everything um, as, as much as might be expected. So actually when we're looking, we kind of look back at the first large-scale experimental beagle colony, which was constructed and run at the University of California, Davis, um, from the sort of 1950s to the 1980s. And this colony kind of sounds incredibly instrumental when you sort of talk about it on a basic sense. So it was designed to test the effects of radiation on a living population of animals. They fed the beagles radioactive food, etc. So it sounds like this incredibly kind of dystopian space. The researchers, however, described it as a beagle utopia. And actually, when you read all of the documents, there are these really uncomfortable similarities between the types of claims that are made about care in the theoretical literature and some of the kind of um, practices that were taking place uh, at this particular experimental site. And I don't have kind of um, time necessarily to go into detail about what those similarities were now. But one of the things I was trying to do in the book was maybe go beyond this particular article where we just literally in the article kind of read the Beagle Colony against um, some of the claims in the care literature in order to sort of trouble um, maybe some arguments about how transformative effective bodily care could be. Um, in the book itself, I've tried to maybe push beyond that a little bit and try to sort of compare the types of care that were being kind of evoked in theoretical literatures with um, activist campaigns related to kind of um, laboratory beagles and to try and kind of see how maybe in some instances you need more, I suppose, um, you need to kind of bring back some more kind of conventional, I suppose, like normative animal rights frameworks um, and that they can actually do some productive work in that context. And I'm really sorry, I've been thrown a bit because everything's frozen and the presentation hasn't worked, so I'm not sure how much that makes sense. So I'm just going to round up by just trying to summarise what the book as a whole was doing that might make a bit more um, so what I was trying to do in the chapter was I suppose push claims that I've made in earlier work or that I've made in earlier work with Greg about laboratory beagles a bit further and ask more sustained questions about what what kind of complicating some of the claims in the care literature might make about notions of sort of the need to move beyond responsibility in a straightforward sense and towards response ability in a Harrowayan sense. Um, and I think, yeah, what I think what we were in the context of the Beagle colony, what we were interested in was the way that kind of care had been quite instrumentalized um, in ways that just kind of allowed business as usual to carry on kind of perpetuating itself in the colony. Um, and basically was designed to sort of redesign the colony space to mould beagles behaviour so they were less likely to disrupt experiments in the future. And I was kind of interested in how this maybe offered provocations for care literature that had talked about the radical potentials of bodily care to sort of unsettle anthropocentric assumptions. Because you know what does it mean 
if certain forms of disruption have been excluded in advance of the encounter itself. And in the sort of article when we first wrote it, we didn't necessarily kind of push that line of argument. We just kind of had quite a hand wavy sort of gesture at the end of it, saying, oh, it's important to know that care in some concepts can be instrumentalized and we need to stay with the trouble. And in the book, what I've tried to do is kind of take these arguments about centralizing, identifying, thinking about the exclusions that have allowed an encounter to take place. And, you know, ask, does this trouble in any fundamental sense some of the kind of claims that are being made in theoretical contexts? And can maybe try to find ways of thinking about identifying and finding ways of being accountable to exclusions be maybe something more central to kind of, um, I suppose, the theoretical debates that are unfolding. And I'm really sorry because everything's frozen. I know I did a terrible job explaining that case study, particularly to people who haven't um, come across it before. But um, hopefully the start of the talk gave a bit of a sense of what I was trying to do in the book, even if the explanation of the chapter was very jerky and didn't make much sense. But hopefully the first bit did give a bit of a, a feeling to the book. I'm going to end there. <laughs> Oh, that's that's a great, Eva, because I think part of the issue, of course, is that things are entangled and we have to move beyond that, right? So um, it, it is complicated. And, and I don't think we should uh, shy away from just recognizing it's complicated. It's also complicated to talk about it um, and to try and make sense of it. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I thought about as uh, taking a, a look at the book before your talk and then having you talk now about it was about this issue of exclusion and how it, how it can function productively um, to exclude things from the situation or from the discussion and how it can also, though, function in a way that makes you look like it's being productive, but it's actually not being productive. Mm -hmm. Um, mm. and, uh, I, I think at a fundamental level, that's, that's really hard sometimes to tackle, um, mm. as an issue of when is it really being productive and when is it really not by excluding things. Mm. I thought at the end in reading your conclusion about, um, extinction rebellion and that activist strand and thinking about, well, what gets excluded, who gets excluded and what gets excluded from that discussion. So therefore, is it productive or not? And in mm. what ways, um, particularly because you had a warning about the fact that sometimes including one set of people or issues can exclude other sets of people or issues, um, which is, I think, what the problem is with that particular mm. strand. So if you can comment on that productivity or not of exclusion. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest problems, I think, is when, as you say, like the problem is when, I think one of the biggest problems is when something doesn't seem like it's an exclusion. And one of the things that I think is an incredibly important text about this that remains really important is Joe Freeman's Tyranny of Structurelessness because it just goes back to that need to kind of always recognition, recognize that some structures exist and no, exclusionary norms often um, reimpose themselves in activist environments that are supposedly structureless, supposedly open to all. 
one of the problems with like, some of the new environmental groups is there's a sense of, oh, we're not being exclusionary, we're open to everybody without recognising that various different types of barriers and inequalities determine who can access those certain forms of protest, for instance, and who gets kind of left out for various reasons. And I think the key thing for me in the, what I was trying to push for in the conclusion was not just saying, oh, any form of exclusion can be productive, but actually saying a clearer focus needs to be on finding ways of taking responsibility for exclusions that can happen so that they can be contested more easily. Because if you haven't kind of recognised an ex exclusion taking place, if you haven't even admitted that, then there's no way of contesting it. And I think that's one of the problems with some of the new environmental movements. There's been that kind of sense of, but we're not exclusionary. And that doesn't offer a kind of good foundation for then trying to kind of contest the exclusions that are there. Absolutely, yeah. But about, um, I guess your first problem is always admitting what your problem is. Yeah, and yeah. Analyzing and, and seeing that you have a problem. Um, and so that is the first hurdle that one has before you can ever figure out if it's actually um, a, a productive way to move forward or not. Okay, um, Mehdi, you had a comment, question. Yeah, let me turn on my camera first. You're up. So, hi. Thank you hi. very much, Eva. Uh, uh, oh, hey, I mean, I can, you, you are moving, so that's good. <laughs> Yeah, thank you very much, especially because uh, I think the entanglement discourse has a lot of currency, but it's not everyone who really ventures into the more ethical and sometimes controversial questions, so I really appreciate that. Uh, and I especially, I'm kind of familiar especially with the issue because I, I wrote my master thesis on a similar uh, topic uh, in which I also kind of applied what I called post-human quandaries. I also kind of involved with the same theoretical context as you, as you showed us. Uh, I applied those to works of nature writing to see how they play, these scenarios in nature writing play out and how they, how they correspond. So, uh, and I also appreciate how you, you applied this to, to, to activism, something in a, in a more like uh, vibrant real life situations. And I just wanted to comment, I didn't have any questions, I just wanted to comment that the way I developed my thinking was to, um, in one work, which was Annie Dillard's uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, it's a book of nature, a very famous book in nature writing, I found the problem that uh, these questions of ethics uh, become futile if you are out of the social context, which I accuse many of nature, nature writers to be in. So they write as a solitary person outside of a social context. And this just causes a problem when it comes to ethics. And which ended up, ended up somehow in transcendentalism. So you had to kind of escape the whole complexity by being transcending the context. That was a problem. But the other book that, I, that really helped me was Barry Roper's Arctic Dreams. Uh, and he spends time in the uh, northern Arctic, where uh, the society of indigenous people, they, their interaction with the non-humans, uh, he, he records several episodes where that is uh, kind of violent or kind of unethical from a Western perspective. So the way that he uh, recorded those and thought through these entanglements within that context 
uh, was especially helpful. And where I ended up was the language. So um, the, 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 the oral traditions of those societies, they were the things that I thought allowed for this non-universal kind of floating signifying uh, reference to the animal. Uh, I mean, the, the, the stories they had about hunting uh, would, did not freeze the animal into, a, into an object uh, like, for example, industrial uh, farming or, or, or industrial production of meat and such things do. So th this was this, uh, it was this kind of interpretive space provided by the story that was uh, really uh, something for me. And I'm, I'm still thinking about that. I keep bringing up these things about storytelling all the time because I thought this space and this language was influential in, in ways of kind of staying with the trouble, which is very difficult not to kind of fall into the pitfalls of transcendentalism or igno ignorance or, I don't know, reduction. This space was very special. So I just wanted to bring that up. Yeah, I think some of the most important work over the past few years has been with scholars who've um, been quite critical of post-humanism and the new materialisms in particular for kind of claiming novelty in the type of um, in the type of frameworks I think that in the types of frameworks these theories are evoking that almost presume a universalism of saying like now we are going to be and we're going to move beyond I suppose the nature culture bifurcation and assuming that kind of dichotomy between nature and culture applies to kind of everyone so like obviously Zoe Todd's work, like King Tolbert um, and um, Juanita Sundberg um, decolonizing post-humanist geographies, I think have been just really important ways of, I suppose, unsettling some of the really normative claims about the novelty of a sort of entanglement paradigm and that that can inadvertently be universalizing in itself. And I think those works maybe speak to some of the issues you've um, talked about. Great. Um, there is a question from Matthew. Matthew, I'll unmute you, so go ahead. Um, yeah, thanks for this presentation. I ordered your book last week when I saw it was scheduled, but it hasn't gotten here yet. So oh, <laughs> thank you. Um, anyway. <laughs> it, it might be in the book, but I was wondering if you think, um, I mean, is there a difference between the way sort of Karen Barad talks about exclusion and the way sort of environmental activist groups are talking about not excluding people and, and do those sort of different ways of thinking about exclusion make a difference or? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, I, I didn't want to cut you off, but <laughs> did you want to carry on? Or... No, 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 that's all. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things I feel really frustrated about is, um, on, in a sort of shoegazy way, I suppose, is that like the exclusion issue kind of came almost at the end of, of writing the book and then it changed a load of how I thought about the rest of it. And so I went and revised it all. But I think when I came to the conclusion, one of the things that I really felt I wanted to push further was those two types of exclusion that you talked about. The exclusion can be this kind of um, problematic thing where you're excluding particular groups of people and you need to kind of contest those forms of exclusion but Karen Brad means it in a productive sense she kind of as you say is talking about the idea that um the exclude uh, that any kind of material any reality that's materialized excludes another 
possibility. So it's that kind of, um, it's an ontological claim, but it's also an epistemological one and an ethical one for Brad. All those things are entangled. But I think it's important to try and think about those two, think a bit more clearly about those two different types of exclusion and the relationship between them. Um, because when I was thinking back to how, say, activist texts, such as, again, the tyranny of structurallessness might feed into all of this, for me, it showed that sometimes it's really important. I think sometimes in activist groups, there's a sort of, or certain types of, like, more sort of liberally activist groups, there's a sort of sense of inclusivity just being about technically allowing everybody to join without attending to the fact that there might be other things that could exclude people and some, maybe those structures need to be actively contested in a different way in order to I suppose allow more inclusive ways of doing politics to be materialized so for me that's kind of sense of the way different types of exclusion kind of come together that you need to in some ways you need to exclude a particular set of relations in order to be less exclusionary in a sort of generic sense so you might need to exclude, I suppose, particular kind of hierarchical relations in an activist group in order to sort of um, overcome forms of exclusion that are marginalising people within that group. And exactly. And Devin um, had a had a comment just in chat about something very similar um, about that uh, exclusion by design. That sometimes you may exclude things with in order to be productive. So for example, you may exclude um, the oil drilling in the Arctic as a possible world. So if we think in the, the science fiction sense, right, of all these possible mm -hmm. timelines and possible worlds, there are certain yeah. ones that you want to actually exclude from the possibilities, whereas others are uh, productive possible worlds. Um, so I, I think that's uh, that's something that that your book really brings um, into focus uh, here. So I was wondering uh, an additional question about you as a media scholar. So so and and how that scholarly interest then intersects specifically in this book. Um, what do you bring as a as a media person um, to this particular study? Yes, yeah, so it's interesting. So um, I suppose I've been concerned in a media studies context with exclusion in a more sort of straightforward sense. So just to give a bit of context about background, a lot of got kind of two strands of research. So I've got this this research, but the other work I've been doing is about um, online hate speech and like my I'm from a Muslim background and um, I've kind of I suppose I've been concerned with exclusion from that much more straightforward, not straightforward, much more generic meaning of the term, so not the Barabian context. And when I've been looking at kind of hate speech, one of the things that's really come to the fore, particularly with Islamophobic hate speech, is that it's really important to sort of move beyond the ideal of, um, oh, we just need to create better spaces for people to come into dialogue with one another so that we can kind of talk these problems out in a sort of Habermasian pluralist sense because actually there's sort of purposeful attempts within um, a lot of online spaces to quite violently exclude certain voices 
from certain perspectives with particular forms of hate speech. And so you're kind of constantly confronted with this question of, you know, how how can you kind of almost overcome that problem of these voices who are deliberately trying to kind of very aggressively um, marginalise other people's experiences. So I think those kind of things were in the background of some of, of some of this work. Um, the other, I suppose, approach is more from a textual analysis perspective. So I suppose I have been interested in particular long-standing discourses that have been used to frame activist perspectives in a particular way and marginalise activism. Um, one thing to note though is I'm not originally from a media studies depart from a media studies background, so my PhD was in critical theory. Um, and I've sort of ended up in media studies and then used some of the tools, um, so discourse analysis, you know, textual analysis of newspapers and things like that as, as kind of things in this project, but I'm from much more of a cultural studies critical theory background, really. Well, I think that's like so many people in environmental humanities really yeah. come at it from all over the place. You know, you you may have one degree and you work in a different kind of department and then you may write a third kind of book, actually. Um, and that's where the productive space actually is because it gives you that leeway um, to move between uh, the old disciplines that had us very siloed. So I really appreciate that as an, as an approach. Um, the other thing I was wondering about is in the introduction and thinking about sometimes these big problems. Uh, I think your activists are dealing with things that are, you know, you talk about complexity, but it's more than complexity, right? It's also about trying to um, address things that are both big and really small. And I thought about mm. um, hyper objects and Morton's idea. Um, and I was wondering if you could speak to that. Are there particular types of issues that you think you can do better or worse with the types of approaches that your activists use? Well, I suppose the area that I've always been interested in is like food politics, because I think it's just such a kind of fraught area in some ways. Um, and and so I'm writing at the moment about veganism just because then um, somebody asked me to do more of a kind of um overview type book about contemporary vegan politics and there's a chapter on that in in this book and I feel like sometimes contemporary developments in, in sometimes temporary developments in food politics have made me rethink some of the things that I said in that chapter so just a bit of context I think food by its nature is just really political and loaded and heated and it just guarantees a lot of kind of discomfort um, whenever you start to talk about food politically because it's just this thing that everybody's invested in um, and the examples that I was looking at in the book were really, I suppose, grassroots activist responses and um, where people were trying to create alternative food infrastructures. And because at the time, like veganism was quite a kind of marginal concern, I was focused on creating, say, protest camp infrastructures and sort of food activism that was trying to link um, politics to do with like animal ethics together with other concerns like um, anti-poverty activism 
and um, food waste activism and thinking about the connections between those issues. And because, as I say, they were developing their own infrastructures, there, there were these kind of alternative economies emerging around what the activists were doing. Constantly, activists were being really reflexive. They were kind of trying to join the dots between the local and the global in ways that weren't just uncritically universalizing particular values. There was a constant sense of how to create accountability to the types of worlds that were being brought into being through their actions and a lot of quite deep-rooted reflection at play um, and I was kind of thinking about in over the past year or so whether my sort of appraisal of say vegan politics and I, and I you know I am vegan you know I hold my hands up and but I was kind of thinking would my posit, holy posit, my, my quite positive appraisal in the book be the same today and I think the kind of object that really comes to mind in thinking about those the sort of shifts that have happened is the kind of Greg sausage roll in the UK or maybe the kind of plant-based McDonald's burger or these kind of food objects that are kind of loaded with political and ethical meanings often quite kind of complicated meanings and people like Richard White have kind of talked about these objects as sort of distinguishing between two types of engagement a kind of more activist engagement where you're trying to create connections with different issues and say well veganism is not enough in itself because you know we need to think much more about how plant-based foods are harvested and think, you know trying to sort of connect different types of political issues and then almost the opting out of systemic questions that occur whether you think oh it's fine I can have this plant-based sausage roll from my local Greg's bakery and yeah, I suppose I've been really interested in how kind of contemporary issues to do with food maybe sort of shut down some of the kind of more complicated forms of responsibility and accountability that perhaps existed when people were having to much more have a DIY approach and create their own infrastructures. And I've got some great interview quotes related to that, but I, I, won't, I haven't got the scope to go into those now. <laughs> Thank you. Fernanda had a question. Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat related actually to, to what you talked about now, but it'd be good to, to lift that up too. So, of course, we all, when we write books, we hope that the books will change the people who read them. But all everyone who's written a book too knows that the books change also the author. You know, when you yeah. So, so what do you, would you say is the one mm -hmm. thing that you brought with you out of this project uh, that you wouldn't have had before you started it that you'd bring into the new projects you're going to now then that's such a good that's such a good question um and as I say it's my first book and yeah I really struggled because I feel because it's just come out I'm flip-flop a lot about how I feel about it. So there's some days where I feel okay about it, some days where I feel really anxious about it. Uh, I think the things that, I'll tell you the two things that I kind of worry about in, in some ways, and then maybe that'll move towards thinking how I, how I change things. On one hand, I worry a lot that I've not been careful enough. Like I've really tried to take the different theoretical approaches, the different activist texts I've used, seriously and treat them kind of carefully but I'm worried that I didn't do that well enough at some point so I, I didn't yeah I, I, I just worry about that on the other hand 
I sort of, I suppose I worry that in some instances I'm not strident enough and I kind of do admire people who take a much more kind of um, upfront, kind of clear cut stance on, on things. And I'm not, I'm not sure I've kind of done that enough. I think perhaps um, I'd probably spend more work getting feed, doing more work kind of getting feedback from people. And I think what I'm trying to do at the moment is just bid for funding where I can kind of um, work in a more systematic way with different activist groups from the beginning to try and sort of support work that they're doing. Because I kind of, I did do that with this book. So a lot of it was participatory action. Some of, some of it, the chapters were based on participatory action research, but I think it's a bit, yeah, I think I'd want to sort of centralise that much more in future work as well. Yeah. Right. Does anyone else have any other questions that we should ask Eva before we close off for today? Chance to uh, bring it up yourself? No? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it's a, it's a book that asks us to rethink kind of a standard language that's become really common within the environmental humanities. Um, you know, we, we, we talk about entanglement a lot. Um, and, Ooh, and, and say something more in response to the last question because that's made me think about how to answer that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think somebody sort of came up to me afterwards and said that they thought that I got still, I was still really, or when I gave a talk about it somewhere else, and said that I was still really quite stuck in that the paradigm that I was critiquing in some ways. And like, I don't even think I'm critiquing it. I think it's kind of a sympathetic engagement. But I suppose definitely it's so much easier to kind of critique than it is to do try and think what comes after so I feel like I sort of set that question up at the beginning and maybe don't sort of come to a clear sense of how to move forward with that and I kind of really wish that maybe I'd, I'd done that I suppose <laughs> so I think in future one of the things that I'd want to take is thinking less about how can you just kind of critique and more about well what does it do to sort of take seriously these other types of questions to kind of push forward with those um, and I'm not just saying like I'll oh, just do a reparative reading because I think sometimes that can be useful but sometimes it can kind of just keep things as they are um, it's more yeah I, I just suppose maybe how can you theory build in a way that's not pretentious um, rather than just critiquing exactly so to move beyond just okay this is wrong to, yeah <laughs> but what does it mean when it's when it would be right so if you think about yeah. possible worlds that we may say that some of those worlds are, are not the right worlds ethically but there are in fact still many that would be possible and we have to think through those possibilities um, and and which of those are the best options there you know and and to actually bring those about as a as a mission mm. so um, i just want to thank you very much eva for talking to us um, and encourage you all um, to get a copy of uh, what comes after entanglement uh, from duke university press um, and uh, thanks again for 
being with us today digitally as we come together across space um, at the same time. Uh, so it's a, a wonder of technology that we can do this in spite of all of the things being shut down. So thank you all for coming. Thank you and thank you so much for uh, sort of putting up with the, the end bit of my kind of discussion of the book where I kind of got thrown by my technology freezing but as I say I really got a lot out of the discussion and I just wanted to thank everybody for their thoughtful questions because I did, I did generally find them super helpful so thank you all very much. <laughs>